When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith declared, I could not be shaken. Hey everybody, I'm Jared Halverson, this is Unshaken, and I'm glad to have you back for some more time in the Book of Mormon this week. Before we get into today's material, we're going to be covering 3 Nephi 27 through 4 Nephi. But before we get there, I wanted to make two announcements. Over the months that Unshaken has been coming online, uh, you have made two requests more than any other. Number one, lots and lots of you have been asking for some kind of a podcast version, an audio only. And that's finally up and running. I'm sorry it took me so long, but if uh, YouTube has been draining your battery or your data usage, uh, you can go to uh, Unshaken Saints. Uh, the word Unshaken was taken as a podcast title, but Unshaken Saints at any of the normal podcast uh, apps and be able to download episodes or listen to them on the go. Uh, hopefully that makes it a little bit more accessible. I know that uh, the, the, all it is is the audio version of what we're doing here on YouTube. And so uh, I'm sorry if there's ever a time that something doesn't make sense because it's visually based. But hopefully for the most part you'll be okay with the audio only. And the second announcement is based on the second most often repeated request that I get. And that's to make these videos accessible to full-time missionaries. Missionaries in the field aren't allowed to access YouTube. They can use Facebook though. And so the hope was, is there any way to get these videos on Facebook so that they can access it that way? And those are up now as well. There is an unshaken page on Facebook that you can find and like and follow. Uh, so tell your missionary siblings or friends or children uh, that they have an access point uh, for those videos as well. I hope that it helps them deepen their understanding and appreciation for the Book of Mormon so that that fire uh, within them is more easily spread to the uh, friends of the faith that they're beginning to teach. I'll put links to both the podcast and the Facebook page in the description of this episode down below. But I hope that they make this content more accessible to people who really want to deepen their understanding and appreciation for the Book of Mormon. Now, today, we finish 3rd Nephi, uh, which means we're finishing the ministry of Jesus Christ among the Nephites. I hope you have fallen in love with 3rd Nephi this time through in ways that you haven't previously. I know I have. But to give us some momentum as we go into chapter 27, let's review the end of chapter 26. The way that Mormon describes what's happening among the Nephites as the Savior approaches the end of his ministry among them, he says that they taught and did minister one to another. They had all things common among them, every man dealing justly one with another, and they did do all things even as Jesus had commanded them. That is what constituted the Church of Christ. What strikes me about that description of the people of Nephi as the Savior has ministered among them is how closely parallel all of those phrases are to the description of the city of Zion in the book of Moses chapter 7. Enoch's people that were caught up to heaven. Remember those great phrases in Moses 7:18, That the Lord called his people Zion because, so here are the qualifiers, they were of one heart and one mind and dwelt in righteousness and there was no poor among them. You see each of those elements manifest in what's taking place among the Nephite civilization here? Zion was of one heart 
Well, here the Nephites, every man deals justly one with another. Zion was of one mind. Here they taught and ministered one to another, all getting on the same page. Zion dwelt in righteousness. The Nephites did do all things even as Jesus had commanded them. Zion had no poor among them. The Nephites had all things common among them. That is what the Church of Christ is meant to prepare us for and point us toward, to become a Zion people. And we are watching the formation of that kind of society unfold in these chapters. In 4th Nephi, we will see it reach its climax, and then we'll see it fall apart. In fact, right before hitting the record button to start filming this lesson, a thought came to my mind that's never crossed it before. I've always been struck by the three temptations that the adversary threw in the Savior's face at the Mount of Temptations. Change the stones to bread, which described in its most generic, is a lust of the flesh, a physical appetite. The second sin, cast yourself off the temple. The Lord won't let you fall. There is a sin of pride. And thirdly, worship me and I will give you all the kingdoms of the earth. There's a sin towards materialism and worldliness. And the reason those three sins are so important is the three generic types that they describe are everywhere in Scripture. In some ways, those are the only kinds of sins there are. And the adversary simply uses different manifestations of them. There were only three kings of united Israel in the Old Testament before the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom split. Saul, David, and Solomon. And you guessed it, those three kings fell to those three temptations. Saul fell to pride, David fell to physical appetite, and Solomon fell to worldliness and materialism. The three temptations the adversary used to bring down the kings of Israel. He tried against the king of kings and was unsuccessful in each of the three. We've seen this repeatedly throughout the Book of Mormon. Whether it was the sins that the great and spacious building was focused on that Nephi describes back in his visions in 1 Nephi, whether it was the sins that Jacob was condemning among his people in the Book of Jacob, same three, whether it was the temptations and sins that the people of Noah were guilty of, that the priests were trying to reassure them was okay, same three. You see it among the Gadianton robbers. I mean, you name it. Throughout the Book of Mormon, you see it over and over and over again. I've tried to bring them up as we've gone through. But what struck me today is that those three temptations spell the downfall of the Zion society that Enoch built and that the Lord is developing here among the Nephites and that he's asking all of us as members of the Church of Christ to prepare for and point the world towards. Think of it this way. If we are of one heart and one mind, how's the adversary going to interfere with that? The sin of pride, where we divide one against another or put ourselves on different strata, different hierarchy. Dwelling in righteousness is gone because of the lust of the flesh, physical appetites, that, that pull towards sin. And then not having poor among us, worldliness and materialism spill disaster to that. Satan is constantly tempting us in those three directions because that spells the downfall of Zion. Or from the Lord's perspective, why does he try to develop a Zion people whenever he has his prophets guiding his children upon the earth to help us overcome the opposition of the adversary? Zion is the cure for the world's diseases. It's the antidote to the three great temptations of Satan. And it's that kind of society that is being developed right here. With that in mind, go from chapter 26 into 27. And notice what happens. It came to pass that as the disciples of Jesus were journeying and were preaching the things which they had both heard and seen and were baptizing in the name of Jesus, 
It came to pass that the disciples were gathered together and were united in mighty prayer and fasting. You get almost this yo-yo effect in verse 1, where they go out to preach and to minister and to baptize, and then they come back to unite themselves with one another in prayer and in fasting. Almost a sense of go out to discharge and then come back to recharge. I see this among the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve. They have meetings in the Salt Lake Temple each Thursday where they discuss the issues of the church around the world. They report on the things that they've been doing. I would love to be a fly on the wall for that. To be able to hear what has happened as these incredible disciples of Jesus Christ have gone forth journeying and preaching and building the kingdom wherever they go, but then coming back and uniting in mighty prayer and fasting. That is a time of fasting and prayer for them. It's a time when they partake of the sacrament, since typically they're at a state conference on a Sunday where the sacrament is not being administered. And hopefully this doesn't just apply to the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve. Do we come together to recharge our spiritual batteries? Isn't that part of what church is for? To assemble and unite in mighty prayer and fasting? So that then, fully recharge the spiritual battery. Now we can go forth, we can journey abroad and make a difference in the world. That's what Zion's for, right? That's the Abrahamic covenant we spent all last week discussing. That's exclusivity in pursuit of inclusivity. Come together to build one another up, but then go out to make a difference wherever you can. As this back and forth is occurring, verse 2, Jesus again showed himself unto them, for they were praying unto the Father in his name. And Jesus came and stood in the midst of them and said unto them, What will ye that I shall give unto you? Now it's a beautiful fact that Jesus comes among them, shows himself unto them, while they are praying unto the Father in his name. We saw in the previous verse that they had united in mighty prayer and fasting. This coming together, this oneness, which is what the at one was all about, is what invites Jesus into our lives and into our ministries. Elder Bednar has taught that if you look at 1st Nephi, all this conflict and friction within Lehi's family because of his sons, Laman and Lemuel pulling in one direction, Nephi and Sam pulling in the other. He pointed out though that the end of 1st Nephi chapter 7 is probably the moment of greatest unity within that family. All kinds of friction in that chapter. But by the end, Laman and Lemuel have begged Nephi for forgiveness and he has frankly forgiven them. These brothers have become one. And what happens in chapter 8? This incredible manifestation of Lehi's dream. The way Elder Bednar described that was unity inviting revelation. And one of the greatest revelatory experiences that that first family of the Book of Mormon shared came right on the heels of an experience of greatest unity among them. The same thing seems to be happening here. It's also a beautiful fulfillment of what Jesus himself said back in Matthew chapter 18 that where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. That's what's happening here. And what does he ask? What will ye that I shall give unto you? You see, the Savior's ministry is coming to a close here. One more chapter. There in chapter 28, he will leave. And so he asks them, I won't be with you much longer. What can I give you before I depart? He's actually going to ask the question a second time in the next chapter. And what's interesting is he probably has to ask them a second time because the first answer they give really has nothing to do with them. 
It is an incredibly selfless petition in chapter 27. And then it seems like the Lord's like, okay, that's great. Yes, I will bless the church with what you asked for. But what about you individually? What do you want? I love that the Lord looks at both the collective, the institutional, but also the individual. He wants to bless the big picture, but he wants to bless the fine detail, you and me, not just the church as a whole. But here, the first thing on the disciples' mind, which tells you something about them and their stewardship and calling, they say in verse 3, Lord, we will that thou wouldst tell us the name whereby we shall call this church. And then the bad news, for there are disputations among the people concerning this matter. We keep seeing that in 3 Nephi. At the beginning of the book, when they saw the signs of Christ's birth, they were disputing on whether or not they could end the law of Moses, had it been fulfilled in Christ yet. In 3 Nephi 11, you see them disputing over the manner of baptism, and Jesus telling them, disputation, contention is not of me, it's of the devil. Well, now they're, they're still fighting. They, they are disputing over positive things. We've talked about this already, the, the need for orthodoxy. But as far as the priorities there, Jesus puts the emphasis on unity in pursuit of orthodoxy, not orthodoxy at unity's expense. So often when I see disagreement, of course it's there in politics, but even in religion, within our own faith sometimes, to see arguing over the best way to accomplish lofty goals. The goal is similar. The goal in many cases is identical. But how do we get there? And all this friction and conflict and disputation on the way, the Lord doesn't want that to happen. The disciples recognize that, and so they are asking for a clear answer. What should we call the church? Sounds pretty relevant for our day, by the way, with all that President Nelson has said about the importance of using the official name of the church, rebranding things. I had a student that works for the church that said there were like 20,000 instances on the church website that had to be changed to reflect that directive from the prophet, to emphasize Jesus Christ at the head of the church, and that by name, this is his church. And sadly, I have seen disputation in social media on is it really a big deal or is it not? Or some people who have left the church and are attacking this, saying, well, is President Nelson throwing President Hinckley or President Monson under the bus? Why is it so evil to say Mormon now when it wasn't back then? So disputation continuing to our day. Verse 4, the Lord says unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Why is it that the people should murmur and dispute because of this thing? And again, that's what we're dealing with, murmuring and disputation. Verse 5 through 8, the Lord begins to respond to this question. And the way he starts it in verse 5 is interesting. Have they not read the scriptures? I love that the Lord points there first. You got a question? Well, have you read the handbook? It's a great place to hide information, as we sometimes joke. Some questions have already been answered. And if we are familiar with the answers he has given us, then many of our questions simply would not arise. Have you checked the scriptures on this? It's incredible that Jesus is with them, the source of the scriptures. He outranks them, and yet he points to them. It's already written. He's done a lot of that last week, right? I'm not going to be with you all the time, so I'm trying to make sure that the records contain the answers to the questions that you have asked, are asking, will ask. It's there. So let me point you to Isaiah and command you to search those words diligently, for they are so great. Let me inject some Malachi. Let's get some uh, Habakkuk and Micah in there. Let's make sure that Samuel the Lamanite's words are on record. Check the scriptures. 
they have more answers than you realize. But then he explains what the scriptures have taught and what they mean. Have they not read the scriptures which say ye must take upon you the name of Christ, which is my name? For by this name shall ye be called at the last day. Now that last phrase is fascinating to me. It's by that name that we'll be called at the last day. I've often pictured a kind of celestial roll call. Reminds me of my first years of teaching seminary. In the first week of class, I was trying to learn names. And I'd have this role, and I'd call out the names and check off people as far as, far as attendance was concerned. And one of the most embarrassing moments was I looked at this name. It ended in I-E-J-O. And as a Spanish speaker, I mean, words like viejo are, are common. And so I thought, oh, we've got a Spanish speaker in here or someone of Latino descent. Fantastic. I, I hope they speak Spanish. And so I, I looked up and I said, uh, Casiejo. Is, is Casiejo here? And total silence. And so I said it again. Uh, Casiejo? Nothing. Now, practically every seat was filled, so I thought, well, I mean, I guess they could be absent, but th does this person really not know their own name? So one last try. <coughs> Casiejo. And finally, this timid girl raised her hand in the back and said, do you mean Cassie Joe?" <laughs> I felt like such an idiot. I'm like, uh, <clears throat> yeah. Cassie Joe. That, that's a, a, glad you're here. You see, we typically do know our own name, and we're waiting to hear it so that we can say, yes, I'm here. But don't wait for your name on Judgment Day. According to what the Lord is telling us here, it's by His name that we will be called at the last day, since it's His name alone that is allowed access. There is no other name given under heaven whereby man can be saved. So don't expect God to pull out a phone book type volume when he says, okay, I have the people that can come into my kingdom. This isn't Santa's list with the naughty and nice. I mean, he could do it on a three by five, well, a post-it note for that matter, and simply say, okay, I have the name of everyone who is allowed access or entrance to my kingdom. And you can picture every heart sinking, thinking, oh my goodness, it's on a post-it note? Nobody made it. But when the Lord says, if this name is yours, come. And then he calls the name of Christ. I hope that doesn't catch us off guard. Or we're wondering and waiting for, for, in my case, to get to the H's. When will he start calling Halversons? Did any of us make it? No, it's am I truly a disciple of Christ? Have I become like him to the point that his name is my name? So that when the Father calls the name of Jesus to enter his kingdom, every committed Christian knows to raise their hand and say, that's me. You get that sense in the Doctrine and Covenants, section 18, where he says, Behold, Jesus Christ is the name which is given of the Father, and there is none other name given whereby man can be saved. Wherefore, all men must take upon them the name which is given of the Father. For in that name shall they be called at the last day. Wherefore, if they know not the name by which they are called, if it's a Casiejo and we were expecting Cassie Joe, if it's Jesus and I was expecting Jared instead, no. If I don't know the name by which I'm called, then I cannot have place in the kingdom of my Father. See what's so powerful about that passage in section 18 of the Doctrine and Covenants is what comes just a verse or two after. Because here, the original three witnesses are tasked with calling a quorum of the twelve apostles. And their question, it would have been mine as well, is how do I know who to call? 
for a role as essential as that, who should I choose? And the Lord explains this, the 12 shall be my disciples and they shall take upon them my name. And here's how you can recognize them. The 12 are they who shall desire to take upon them my name with full purpose of heart. And if they desire to take upon them my name with full purpose of heart, they are called to go into all the world to preach my gospel unto every creature. And they are they who are ordained of me to baptize in my name. See the connection there? Of course they are able to baptize in my name, to give that name to others, because more than anything else, they desired to take that name upon themselves. At the expense, I would add, of whatever name they bore previously. In the case of Russell M. Nelson, his name shifted from Dr. Nelson to Elder Nelson. In the case of Dallin H. Oaks, his name was changed from Justice Oaks to Elder Oaks. It's incredible to watch these amazing disciples lay aside whatever professional career or accolades they had received to put aside their name and to desire with full purpose of heart to replace it with the name of Jesus, knowing that they would be special witnesses of the name of Christ in all the world, bearing his name to those who need to take that name upon themselves. I remember my wife going through that after we were married. And it took her a while to realize that when people said Sister Halverson, they were speaking to her. For the previous 24 years, she was Sister Stoddard. And to be able to hear that name and do a double take and realize, oh wait, that is my name now. I'm the one being called. Do we realize that we are truly Christians because we have taken that name upon us? And I emphasize the word take. You see that in verse 6. Whoso taketh upon him my name and endureth to the end, the same shall be saved at the last day. Now we can talk about that second phrase, enduring to the end with that name. You often see that when a couple is divorced. What does the wife choose to do as far as last name is concerned? Does she maintain the married last name or her maiden name? Will I maintain, retain the name of Christ until the very end? Never resorting back to my old natural man or woman identity. Never giving him cause to question whether we're deserving of the name he freely gave us to begin with. Those are questions worth considering. But I want to actually spend more time on the first phrase in verse 6. Whoso taketh upon him my name. Now it's not completely up to us. In the sacrament prayers, we covenant not to take upon ourselves the name of Christ, but to be willing to take upon ourselves that name. Showing that, Will Eller Oaks has talked about this, showing that willingness is a recognition that it's not just ours for the taking. The Lord is offering it to us if we show that we are willing to partake of it. But with that understood, that idea of taking the name not just waiting for the world to brand us with something. That's, I believe, what President Nelson is trying to help us overcome. Instead of simply holding on to a name that was not of our own choosing, the Mormons, to take the name of Christ that Christ gave to his church. See, I've been fascinated for a long time with the idea of naming things religiously because I've noticed this trend throughout history. First time it happens is in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 11, it says that the disciples were called Christians first 
in Antioch. Now, the fact this is the book of Acts means Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are over. The ministry of Christ has already come and gone. And it's not till then that people start getting called Christians? Well, what were they called before? Well, all those people who followed him were Jews by birth, right? Peter, James, John, they were all Jewish. And they saw in Jesus not some new religion coming, but rather the fulfillment of the covenant God made with Abraham, the promises to the house of Israel, the Jewish Messiah had come among them. It fulfilled everything. So for Jews to say, you're not Jewish, they would have said, what are you talking about? This is Judaism personified. The Messiah has come to fulfill all the law of Moses. Everything that we've been doing all these millennia has been pointing to this day. And yet the Jews would say, no, 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 no. You're adding scripture. You can't do that. You, you have new leadership. Well, we, we're sticking with the old prophets, none of these new apostles. No, you, you can't change things. Closed canon, no need for living representatives. Sound familiar, Latter-day Saints? As people will say to us, no, 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 you're not Christians because you've added new scripture. You claim new prophets and apostles. No, it's, it's, it is what it is, and it's closed. There's so many fascinating parallels there. And in a similar way, what did the ancient Jews decide to do? In a way, they were going after brand purity. Now, that's putting it kind of bluntly. But to think, no, 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 if you go around claiming to be Jews, and people think that that's what we believe, we who are trying to protect the brand purity, we don't accept Jesus as Messiah. We are still holding out hope for a, a coming Messiah at some point. And so in the meantime, to keep people clear, to stop them from being confused, confusing us with them that we do not want to be a part of, we're going to have to brand them something different. Let's call them, well, if they think that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, well, let's call them that, the Christians, the Christians. And the name stuck. You actually see the similar thing happening in the Book of Mormon during the war chapters. Alma 46 talks about the cause of Christians, and then Mormon interjects and explains the name. He says, For thus were all the true believers of Christ, who belong to the church of God, called, but notice this, called by those who did not belong to the church. So even in the Book of Mormon, the title Christians, when first slapped upon this group of believers, was not meant as a compliment. It wasn't something they chose for themselves. It was, it was plastered upon them. And yet, as those verses continue, they did take upon them that name gladly. And so the name stuck. But the same thing happens throughout history. Fast forward to the coming of Martin Luther. And his intention was never to start some new church. He simply wanted to reform Catholicism. That word Catholic simply means universal. So when we talk about the Catholic Church, it was this sense of, no, this is it. This is the whole universal church. It's for everyone. And Luther believed that and wanted to be a part of it. He was a part of it. He was just trying to make some changes within. But then in an effort for brand purity, when Catholicism decided, no, 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 what you're describing is not what we want, not the path we want to take. You're trying to change theology or practice or ecclesiology, whatever it might be. And so we're going to brand you something different. You are protesting against us. So you are protestants. You're Protestants. Same thing happened. Fast forward. You have an Anglican church and you have people within it, John Wesley primarily, who says, you know, there's got to be a better method of really living the gospel, infusing Anglicanism with, with a, a methodology of discipleship. And Anglicanism didn't want that. 
And so they wanted to separate themselves. This whole time, Wesley was saying, oh, I'm, an, I'm an Anglican. I'm not a Wesleyan. I'm not trying to start a new church. I am an Anglican. And they said, not by our definition. And so we're going to rebrand you. And we will, since you want a method to everything, fine. You are Methodists. Please do not call yourselves Anglican anymore. You get a sense of that in LDS history? Where there's a sense of, no, you're not Christians. You're not members of the Church of Christ. That's our group. That's our denominations. You're going to be something else. You've added scripture. So fine, let it stick. This Book of Mormon, that's what's going to label you Mormonites, is how they originally called us. And then eventually just you Mormons. Now, as was the case with Christians and Protestants and Methodists and Mormons, we were fine with that. Okay, if you want to call us that, we'll make the best out of it. We'll take what was intended as a term of derision and turn it into a compliment. But again, it must be remembered, that was not the title, not the name of our choosing. What was the name that was given us by Christ? What was the name that we must take upon us to reclaim as the name by which we should be known? We are Christians. Just a couple of weeks ago, I had about a hundred evangelical college students from around the country come to Salt Lake, and they asked me to come and spend like three hours doing Q&A with them. It was awesome. Great group of people. But we talked about what it means to be a Christian and why certain groups, evangelical groups primarily, have such a hard time in allowing Latter-day Saints to be considered or to call ourselves Christians. In fact, I shared with them on my mission, I remember I'd go and be talking to Puerto Ricans in Spanish, and every once in a while I'd meet some sweet little old lady that would just look at me, and you could kind of tell that the wheels were turning, but she'd just look confused and say, lo siento, no hablo inglés. I'm sorry, I, I don't speak English. And I would be speaking to her in Spanish. I'd say, oh, está bien, estoy hablando español. I'm speaking Spanish. I'm speaking your language. And yet there was just this disconnect. It's like my ears are saying Spanish, but my eyes are saying gringo. There's no way. So uh, no speak English. And I just, no estoy hablando inglés. I'm not speaking English. No speak English. Yo tampoco. Me neither. Uh, I'm speaking Spanish. Please understand me. And there was just this, nope. I cannot accept the fact that you might be speaking my language. And I think there's some of that. We sound like Christians, we talk like Christians, but there's certain this sense like, no, no, I look at you and I see your doctrine, I see your additional scripture and living prophets and all these other things, and I cannot accept that you are a Christian. So in the interest of brand purity, there has to be a distinction. We have to define you differently, give you a different name. And yet, as I talked with this evangelical group, I said, sadly, the word Christian and the word Christian sound exactly the same. But there's two different terms being used. And often, the term being used at the pulpit is different than what is being heard in the pew. You see, there is a Christian that if you looked at it on paper, it would be a capital C with a little TM at the back or an R in a circle. This is a registered trademark. And so when someone from the pulpit says, Latter-day Saints, Mormons aren't Christians. Now, if they're being technical about this, what they're saying is, they do not sign off on the Christian creeds of historical Christianity. They do not accept the creed or council of Nicaea. They don't accept the council of Chalcedon or Constantinople. They don't accept the things that historical Christianity has passed through. And they're right. Elder Holland admitted that when he spoke at Harvard several years ago. Are we Christians, he was asked? Well, it depends on how you define it. 
if you're talking council convening philosophy flavored historical Christianity. Those were Elder Holland's words, they blew me away. And he said, then no, we're not that kind of Christian. Capital C, registered trademark, TM, Christianity. But if you're talking about Christian, generic, someone who believes in Jesus as the living son of Almighty God, as the savior of the world, if you define someone who is trying to pattern their lives after his and trusting with their faith in him, in his atonement, in his saving grace, then yes, we are that kind of Christian. With this group of evangelical students, I said, when you, when you guys uh, need to blow your nose or wipe your nose, what do you reach for? What, what do you grab? And it was so funny. At the same time, I heard some people say, oh, a, a tissue, and others say, a Kleenex. I said, thank you. I was expecting that. Now, one of those is generic, a tissue. The other is brand purity. And if you ever ask somebody for a Kleenex and they hold out a box, you're not going to look at it and go, oh, <clears throat> that's a cottonelle. I, I, I wouldn't touch it. No, we just use the technical term for the generic thing. Kleenex kind of has a corner on the market as far as name recognition is concerned. So what are we talking about? What does it mean to be a Christian? I would hope that as members of the Church of Jesus Christ, of Latter-day Saints, that the way we live our lives, the way we pattern our discipleship after the Master, the way we speak of Him and teach of Him and preach of Him and rejoice in Him, would be enough to confirm to any observer that when it comes to generic Christianity, we truly are disciples of Christ, that we are Christians. Let people argue over the registered trademark all they will. But we need to take upon ourselves the true name of who we truly are to make it obvious to anyone who might wonder that we are Christians. He continues explaining that concept in the verses that follow. Verse 7, Therefore, whatsoever ye shall do, ye shall do it in my name. Everything we do, I mean, he's answering more than what they asked. I mean, he answers it, next phrase, therefore ye shall call the church in my name. Okay, I'll answer your question. But in a bigger perspective, everything you do should be done in my name. Why do you think we pray in the name of Jesus Christ? Why do you think we conclude our talks and testimonies, our lessons with in the name of Jesus Christ? We're doing this as if we were he, because for all intents and purposes, we should be. I don't think I'll ever forget a story that a colleague of mine told me. He was a priesthood leader at the time and he was sitting up on the stand as a young man was giving a talk, I'll keep that in quotation marks, at church. I say talk, but it wasn't much of one. The young man was flippant and irreverent and honestly probably shouldn't have been up there speaking at all, but it was this awkward moment. Does the bishop get up and, and stop things? Do I turn off the mic? But just, it was, it was a, a train wreck. It, this was awful. And he was just, again, this young man was flippant and didn't care and was just kind of joking through it all as if the gospel didn't mean anything to him and surely didn't, shouldn't have meant anything to people in the congregation. Well, this friend of mine sitting on the stand was getting more and more uncomfortable and more and more indignant. And it reached its apex at the very end of this young man's so-called message. Because, as if on autopilot, as he was wrapping it up and racing to the finish line, he said, and I say this 
and you know what was about to come at the end. And my friend sat there and kind of visceral reaction thought to himself, don't you dare. Don't you dare invoke the name of Jesus Christ to end whatever it was that you just shared. Nothing could be further from what would have come out of his lips if he were standing before this group of his disciples. Don't you dare conclude this in his name. Everything that we do should be deserving of the name of Christ. That should be the standard we set for everything that we do in the church, that we do it in his name and that it deserves his name, that he would gladly affix his name to it. And then look at the end of verse 7. And ye shall call upon the Father in my name, that he will bless the church for my sake. It's interesting that everything that Jesus did was for our sake, and yet he asks that the Father might bless the church for his sake. You see, when we bear his name, everything that we do in his name is reflecting upon him. And so, for good or bad, what are we doing to that name? It's for his sake. Reminds me of an incredible statement that Elder Robert D. Hales made in one of my favorite talks. I reread it every time I do something interfaith related. It was from October of 2008, and it was called Christian Courage. The courage side was the need to stand up for what we believe, but the Christian side was to do it in such a way that there can be peace and no disputation. Very appropriate for what we're seeing in chapter 27. But Elder Hale said this, more regrettable than the church being accused of not being Christian is when church members react to such accusations in an unchristlike way. The way I translate that phrase is, when somebody attacks you or says that you're not Christian, please don't prove them correct by the way you respond to them. Please do not give the church a black eye in the way that we deal with opposition or persecution. Be Christ-like even then, especially then, and do it for Christ's sake, since our behavior will send a message about the person whose name we claim to have taken upon us. Now back to the specifics of their question, verse 8, How be it my church, save it be called in my name? It seems pretty obvious to us, but for some reason it wasn't to them. He explains, If a church be called in Moses' name, then it be Moses' church. Or if it be called in the name of a man, then it be the church of a man. It's amazing to go through the phone book and look at the names of churches and shocking how few of them actually choose to take and declare the name of Christ. There have been some that have grown up since the restoration of the gospel. But to think about, even in our case, do we talk too much about people that are lower on the totem pole than Jesus? I hope that our friends of other faiths do not consider this the church of Joseph Smith or consider this the church of Mormon. Again, I am all for what President Nelson is trying to get us all to embrace. It lets the world know whose church this is. Now he adds one more caveat in verse 8 at the end. Because if that's all it is, oh, just put the right name on it? Is he going to claim it? Like I said, not everything that is said in the name of Jesus Christ really would be something that he would authorize or accept. And so notice the caveat at the end of the verse. If it be called in my name, then it is my church. And then the if. If it so be that they are built upon my gospel. 
So the name, the right name, is absolutely essential. But so is the right gospel. Both the packaging and the contents have to be pure. And in the case of these Nephites, verse 9, they were. They qualified. Verily I say unto you that ye are built upon my gospel. So the only thing that you're lacking is the right name of the church. And I just clarified it for you, so use it. Therefore ye shall call whatsoever things ye do call in my name. Therefore, if you call upon the Father for the church, if it be in my name, the Father will hear you. And if it so be that the church is built upon my gospel, then will the Father show forth his own works in it. So the Lord is shifting from the name of Christ on the church to the gospel of Christ that must characterize the church. And one of the identifying features is that the Father will show forth his own works in the church that bears his son's name and carries his son's gospel. Now to understand what he might mean by that, the works of the Father, the Father showing forth his own works in the church, the best place in my opinion to see that is John chapter 5. In that chapter there are certain people that are accusing Jesus and attacking him of blasphemy for claiming to be the Son of God. They're also attacking him for having healed the lame man at the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath. And Jesus says this to them, My Father worketh hitherto, and I work. So I'm trying to show you what the works of the Father are like, what will be manifest in me. And if you look at that chapter in detail, you'll see some of the things the Savior had in mind as far as the way the Father works and that the Son works as well. And then by association, we as members of the church ought to work also. John 5.15, it was Jesus which had made the man whole. So what do we learn from that about the Father? that the Father makes broken things whole. In John 5, 21, For as the Father raiseth up the dead and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. What do we learn there? That the Father brings life to the dead. In verse 36 of that chapter, Jesus says, The works which the Father hath given me to finish, the same works that I do, bear witness of me, that the Father hath sent me. The Father starts work that he wants us to finish. And Jesus was finishing it, as his church is meant to. John 5, 37. And the Father himself, which hath sent me, hath borne witness of me. So what do we learn there? That the Father bears witness of Jesus Christ. Take that list together. And if it so be that the church is built upon my gospel, then will the Father show forth his own works in it? What kind of fatherly works must the church be manifesting that we help God make broken things whole that we help God bring life into dead places and dead people that we perform the father's work that we continue it whatever he started his work and his glory we see to completion that we bear witness of the son so that by seeing us They catch a glimpse of him. It's for his sake, after all. Are we performing the Father's work? Are we showing forth what God is doing in the world, in people's lives? I hope so. Because the alternative I want to avoid. Verse 11, if it be not built upon my gospel and is built upon the works of men or upon the works of the devil. So those are the two other options. Kind of celestial, terrestrial, telestial or I guess that last place would be outer darkness, is this God-made or man-made or devil-made. 
Is it a positive or a negative or somewhere neutral in the middle? If it's either of the other two, merely human or truly diabolical, here's their promised result. They have joy in their works for a season. And by and by the end cometh, and they are hewn down and cast into the fire from whence there is no return. Joy for a season. But it just doesn't last. Gamaliel understood this in the book of Acts when people started to attack Christianity. The way he responded, If this counsel or this work be of men, let alone of the devil, it will come to naught. But if it be of God, just what if, then ye cannot overthrow it lest happily ye be found even to fight against God. So what was Gamaliel's advice? Leave it alone and just watch what happens. Time will tell. You know, there was a man, a pastor of the German Reformed Church that had known enough about Joseph Smith and the early church members that he didn't like them. And he thought, well, eventually they will go the way of all the earth. That's how he said it. The greatest imposter of our times in the field of religion is no doubt a certain Joseph Smith. This new sect should not cause the Christian church great astonishment. The past centuries have also had religious offshoots. But what has become of them all? They have all been absorbed in the sea of the past and marked with the stamp of oblivion. This will also be the lot of the Mormonites, and I hope, while it is still in the bud. Well we have a little more hindsight than Reverend Willers did. But to see the growth and progress of the kingdom of God upon the earth as we are barreling forward towards our millennial day, gathering Israel on both sides of the veil, helping the Father keep his covenant, perform his saving work, all for his sake and the sake of his Son. You see, that's another way to tell. Notice how he says in verse 12, their works do follow them. It's because of their works that they're hewn down. Therefore, remember the things that I have told you. I think that's true of all three areas, though, three levels. The works of God follow God. They lift us higher, heavenward up to him. The works of the devil bring us down to him. His works follow him as well, bringing us away from God. And the works of man, I guess they can take us in any possible direction. Their works will follow them wherever they happen to be leading. Now, verse 13, the Lord's going to be even more clear and more specific. Remember, he's trying to clarify what he said at the end of verse 8, that you're my church, A, if you got my name, and that's kind of easy to claim. But number two, if you're also built upon my gospel. And so he's going to give us in chapter 27 one of the clearest definitions of his gospel that you could ask for. It consists of two parts the Lord's part, and our part. In a way, you see the two also side by side in the third article of faith, that we believe through the atonement of Christ, that's his part, all mankind may be saved. By obedience to the laws and ordinance of the gospel, that's our part. You get a sense of both in this chapter as well. Verse 13, Behold, I have given unto you my gospel, and this is the gospel which I have given unto you. So get your pens out. <laughs> Here's the definition that I came into the world to do the will of my Father, because my Father sent me. It's amazing how often Jesus comes back to that. Remember Elder Holland pointed that out from 35, 11. The first thing Jesus says as he descends among the multitude, I have come to do the Father's will. I am obedient to him. What is the gospel? 
It's doing anything and everything that God asks of us. For Christ, what did that mean? And for us, what does that mean? Jesus explains. Verse 14, my father sent me that I might be lifted up upon the cross. And after that I had been lifted up upon the cross, that I might draw all men unto me, that as I have been lifted up by men, even so should men be lifted up by the Father, to stand before me, to be judged of their works, whether they be good or whether they be evil. 15, he continues that, For this cause have I been lifted up. Therefore, according to the power of the Father, I will draw all men unto me, that they may be judged according to their works. There's the atonement side of the gospel, which as Latter-day Saints, we shift the center of gravity much towards Gethsemane because the rest of the world doesn't seem to appreciate or understand all that Jesus went through for all the sins of humanity, sufferings, sorrows, you name it, in the Garden of Gethsemane. But I fear sometimes that we emphasize Gethsemane at the expense of Calvary when the two have to be part of the same. It's all part of his atoning agony. The Book of Mormon itself makes it clear repeatedly by his sufferings and death, those two words come together often. Sufferings, Gethsemane, death, Calvary. Atonement, crucifixion, it's all part. The Savior is speaking of the crucifixion primarily. I came to earth to be lifted up upon the cross. Gethsemane brought me to my knees. In fact, it brought me lower. I descended below all things. I fell on my face, the scriptures say. But going down in Gethsemane was followed by being lifted up on Calvary. And by being lifted up, I could draw all men unto me. You see, I had to descend below all things so I could be beneath humanity to bear them up. I had to hit rock bottom. I had to be the rock at rock bottom so that when somebody descended to that point, I would still be beneath them where I've always been to bear them up. And as I was lifted up upon the cross, the Father will lift all of you up to him. Look to Jesus on the cross and you will be looking up. Look past Jesus on the cross and you will be seeing the Father behind him, ready to accept the Son, but also to lift all of humanity heavenward. That is the gospel. Gospel means good news. No, crucifixion does not seem like good news, especially not to Jesus. But the results of that are the best news we could possibly hear, the best news we could possibly publish to the world. So share it. Those are the glad tidings of great joy that shall be to all people. That is the gospel. But in raising us all back up to God, what has God raised us to? He's raised us to judgment. That's overcoming the first spiritual death. Samuel Lamanite talked about that. Alma talked about that. The atonement had to be unconditional in terms of reversing the effects of the fall of Adam and Eve. And so promising the resurrection overcomes physical death. Bringing us back to judgment overcomes spiritual death. But now it's on us. The unconditional part of the atonement now becomes the conditional part. And what have we done with the grace that God offers us? Now we see our part of the gospel 
as described in verse 16. It shall come to pass that whoso repenteth and is baptized in my name shall be filled. With what? We keep seeing this in these third Nephi chapters. We talk about being filled and then fill in the blank with the Holy Ghost. You see the fourth article of faith there in that verse? You see the doctrine of Christ as Nephi spelled it out so beautifully in 2 Nephi 31? Or as Jesus did back in chapter 11 to clarify, this is my doctrine? It's faith. There's the in my name. It's repentance. That's clearly spelled out. It's baptism, which is mentioned there by name. And it's the Holy Ghost, which is what he hints at with being filled. And then step five, and if he endureth to the end. Keep on holding on to faith. Keep on repenting. Keep your covenants made in baptism. Keep the continual companionship of the Holy Ghost. Endure in this to the end. Hold on to my name. If you do, behold him will I hold guiltless before my Father at that day when I shall stand to judge the world. There is no second spiritual death for those. They're his. They've been sealed to him. And when the Father calls the name of the Son, all of those who have maintained and retained that name will know exactly who he's referring to when he welcomes them home. Otherwise, verse 17, he that endureth not unto the end, the same as he that is also hewn down and cast into the fire, from whence they can no more return because of the justice of the Father. That's the second spiritual death I just mentioned. Now, that's the second time he mentioned fire. He said it in verse 11, says it again in 17, hewn down and cast into the fire. Now, I didn't think we Latter-day Saints believed in that lake of fire and brimstone. Well, Joseph Smith described it more as the feelings of regret knowing that we didn't accept all that God in his generosity and goodness had offered us. But there's another element to that fire metaphor. Paul hints at it in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He says this, Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. Remember, we got that sense back in verse 11. Oh, they might have joy in their works for a season, but by and by the end cometh. That's Gamaliel. That's Reverend Willers. That's all this. Just let time prove things. Let the fire spread and see what gets consumed by it as opposed to what gets refined by it. The trials of our faith, the fire of difficulty and tribulation will let us know whose we are. It'll prove whose works we've been doing. Our own? That's going to go up in smoke and ashes. The Lord's? If all we've been doing has been in his name, then those things, even our things, will be refined, purged, purified. You see, fire doesn't just consume. It cleanses. In fact, 2020 is perhaps a great year to start seeing and sensing within ourselves how much of what we've been doing is just self-made, man-made. What have I really been relying upon? Because at the end of the day, when the fire comes to test things, to prove things, what stays standing? Same idea comes out in the book of Hebrews, that all this shaking that's been going on, and that, that occupies my mind all the time, hence the name of this channel. The shaking of people's faith is to tell what has been well-founded and what has not. The shaking reveals the strength of a foundation. The fire reveals 
how something has been made. And it has to be this way. Verse 19 tells us that no unclean thing can enter into God's kingdom. Therefore, nothing entereth into his rest, save it be those who have washed their garments in my blood. Because of their faith and the repentance of all their sins and their faithfulness unto the end, that's his gospel. Remember, he did his part throughout mortality, through Gethsemane, through Calvary, through the garden tomb. But what about our part? No, our part doesn't save us. Jesus saves us. But to be savable, to be reconciled to his will, have we exercised faith in him? Have we repented of those stiff-arming reflexes that keep him at arm's length? Have we covenanted to take his name and retain it? Do we have the companionship of the Holy Ghost? Is the fire having its intended effect upon us to burn away, to purge away any unclean thing? Are we washed in the blood of the Lamb? And to the degree that we are not, and that applies to all of us, then verse 20 is for us. Now this is the commandment. Repent. All ye ends of the earth, come unto me. There's faith again. Be baptized in my name, that ye may be sanctified by the reception of the Holy Ghost, that ye may stand spotless before me at the last day. That's how we maintain the name. That's how we come home. Faith in Christ, repentance through Christ, covenant with Christ, Holy Ghost guiding and helping us become more like Christ. That's our part of the gospel. Verse 21, verily, verily, I say unto you, this is my gospel, my part and yours. And ye know the things that ye must do in my church. For the works which ye have seen me do, that shall ye also do. For that which ye have seen me do, even that shall ye do. Now that was a lot of do's. And lest we think that discipleship is a, a, a to-do list, turn the page and look at verse 27, where he says at the end, what manner of men ought ye to be? Verily I say unto you, even as I am, which can be taken just like me or just like I am, as in I am that I am. The God of Israel, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the whole world, the Messiah of Mount Sinai, Redeemer of Israel. Are we like him? Are we like Jesus? Are we lion and lamb? Are we justice and mercy? Are we all of that? Please keep in mind, it's not just the do, 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 five times in verse 21. It's the be of verse 27. Are we becoming what Jesus is? That's the only reason he asks us to do anything in the first place. It is doing with an eye to becoming. Now, between those two verses, 21 and 27, he says an interesting thing. 23, write the things which ye have seen and heard, save it be those which are forbidden. Now, I would consider that the ideal. Write down what I've taught you. Write down the things you've seen and heard. I mean, up to the point of sanctity itself where you should not utter these things. Write that down. There's the top line. Then 24, write the works of this people which shall be, even as hath been written of that which hath been. If 23 is the ideal, then 24 is the real. 23, what we should be doing, what you've seen in me. 24, what you've actually been doing. Because in 25, out of the books which have been written, 
and which shall be written, shall this people be judged, for by them shall their works be known unto men. We'll be judged based on the gap between what's written in 23 and what's written in 24. The space between the ideal and the real. And just in case you think you can cook the books, verse 26, that's not the only set that will be recorded. Behold, all things are written by the Father. Therefore, out of the books which shall be written, shall the world be judged. So part of the judgment is not just the discrepancy between the ideal and the real that we've been recording, but any possible discrepancies between our version of the ideal and the real and God's version of it. I am grateful for just how perfectly God understands the real and not just the ideal. That is part of the mercy that comes because of the atonement. That Jesus condescended to our level to know just how hard it is to keep 24 up on the level of 23. He knows our flesh. He knows what it feels like to be made of dust. And he fills that gap with his grace. He'll do that for us as well. And then he says in 27, And know ye that ye shall be judges of this people, according to the judgment which I shall give unto you, which shall be just. Therefore, so it's in that context that he adds the be to the do that we saw earlier. Therefore, because of the fact that you will have to be judges of this people too, you Nephite disciples, or we as we judge ourselves, or as we try to make righteous judgment calls regarding other people, not to judge unrighteously, but to judge righteous judgment. Remember we saw that back in 3 Nephi chapter 14. But it's with that concept of judgment in mind that he says, therefore, what kind of judge should you be? What manner of men and women ought ye to be, even as I am? Someone who understands the perfect level of the ideal, but also empathizes with the much lower level of the real. Someone who fills that with experience and understanding and empathy. Someone who tries to view our set of books through God's. I think the assumption would be that, well, God's view is going to be so much harsher than my own. I should probably be harder on myself. I should raise the level of divinity much higher than I do and lower the level of humanity. Well, again, the fact that Jesus came to condescend below all things, he might have a clearer picture than we do of what we're up against, not just what we're aiming for. Yes, he will be perfectly just. That is part of the Old Testament, I am but he will be perfectly merciful, which is part of the New Testament, I am Jesus. And you don't just have to separate Old from New Testament. There is plenty of justice in the New and plenty of mercy in the Old. It's Jehovah, Jesus, start to finish. For some of us, that will mean taking more seriously divine expectations. For many others of us, it will be being reassured that you're doing better than you think. Judge righteous judgment. Judge like he would. With whatever combination of justice and mercy will help move us forward. That's the Goldilocks zone of how much we are troubled by our sins. Remember we talked about that in Alma chapter 42. He's now ready to wrap up this ministry. He says in 28, Now I go unto the Father. And verily I say unto you, whatsoever thing ye shall ask the Father in my name shall be given unto you. That's how I started this chapter. I'm about to leave. I asked you what you wanted. You asked for clarification about the church. That was beautifully selfless of you wonderful disciples, you church leaders. But again, I reassure you, 
ask. I know what I'm asking of you. So ask of the Father whatever you need to accomplish it. That's what Jesus said to his original 12 apostles in Jerusalem as he was headed towards Gethsemane and Calvary to perform his part of the gospel. He said, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you to bring forth fruit. That's a tall order. And that your fruit should remain. That's an even taller order. But then he promises them that what you ask of the Father will be given you. I know you'll need the help. It's yours for the asking. So ask. 29, ask and ye shall receive. Knock, it shall be opened unto you. He that asketh receiveth. Unto him that knocketh, it shall be opened. And then he admits, gives us a window into his beautiful heart in verse 30. Now behold, my joy is great, even unto fullness, because of you and also this generation. Yea, even the Father rejoiceth, also all the holy angels, because of you and this generation, for none of them are lost. We got a glimpse of Christ's joy when he was blessing the children. Here we see it again. On behalf of this entire generation, they're all going to make it. No empty chairs. None are lost. 31, he clarifies, I mean them who are now alive of this generation. None of them are lost. In them I have fullness of joy. See, there was a distinction back in 35.8 with the destruction of the wicked. Hope is not lost for them either. God plays the long game and has made ample provision to bring his children home. But for you survivors, yes, you needed repentance yourself. I said that back in chapter 10 as well. I keep crying repentance among you here, sending the disciples to do the same. But it's working. You're choosing faith and repentance and baptism and the Holy Ghost. I see in you that you will be able to endure to the end. You will do your part of the gospel as I have done mine. And that fills me with joy. Compare it to verse 32. It sorroweth me because of the fourth generation from this one. For they are led away captive by him, even as was the son of perdition. For they will sell me for silver and for gold, for that which moth doth corrupt, and which thieves can break through and steal. And in that day will I visit them, even in turning their works upon their own heads. The fire will reveal those ones as well. Some joy in 31 mingled with the sorrow of 32, balancing the present realities against those future ones. Bittersweet experience as Jesus beholds it all. And then to them and to us, he says in verse 33, as he ends these sayings, enter ye in at the straight gate, for straight is the gate, narrow is the way that leads to life, few there be that find it, while wide is the gate, broad the way that leads to death. Many there be that travel therein, until the night cometh wherein no man can work. Now is the time to choose. So choose wisely. But again I ask, what do you want, disciples? In 28, their answer is amazing. When Jesus had said these words, he spake unto his disciples one by one, individual choices, individual desires being asked for and honored. He says unto them, what is it that ye desire of me after that I am gone to the Father? Pick back up where I started the last chapter. What is it that you want? Now they all spake except for three. You know who those three are. But in verse two, the nine disciples say this, we desire that after we have lived unto the age of man, 
that our ministry wherein thou hast called us may have an end, that we may speedily come unto thee in thy kingdom. Now that's a beautiful desire. We're going to serve you because we love you. But serving you without being with you, we'll miss you. So as soon as we're done with our service, can we rush back home? I want to be away from you for as short a time as possible. And he rewards them for that. Verse 3, blessed are ye because ye desired this thing of me. So here's how it's going to happen. After you are 70 and two years old, ye shall come unto me in my kingdom, and with me ye shall find rest. Now, I don't know if they expected such a specific response to their petition. It's like, okay, 72. How's that sound? Whoa. Now, again, it's not completely clear. He just says, after that ye are 70 and 2. I don't know if they had to plan for their funeral the same day as their birthday when they hit 72. Or just sometime in that year or sometime after that time. That's how long it's going to last. I don't know. But it is kind of jolting, I think, to go, wow. I really do have an end date on this. I think so often we serve as if we had all the time in the world and we can always do better later. And perhaps this was a wake-up call for them, as it would have been to me, I'm sure. It was like, whoa, this does come to an end someday? The beginning of my mission, I'll admit, felt like it would never come to an end. But the closer I approached it, the more I wanted to push it back and extend as far as possible. I just wanted to keep doing what I was doing. And that was the sense of the other three. Now, he just congratulated the nine on the goodness of their desire. Blessed are ye. No wonder, verse 4, the other three are a little gun-shy about explaining what they had had in mind because it was different from the others. I think that's a concern we probably would all understand. Are we supposed to want what everybody else wants? Are we supposed to be cookie cutters? Is there one size fits all form of discipleship? Or is there diversity within unity? Can there be various righteous desires? And which one do you find the greatest joy in? Now for these, he asks them again, what will you that I should do unto you when I am gone unto the Father? And verse 5, they sorrow in their hearts because they, they don't want to mention it. They durst not speak unto him the thing which they desired. Well, good for them. They don't have to. Verse 6, Jesus knows their thoughts and says to them, Ye have desired the thing which John, my beloved, who was with me in my ministry, before I was lifted up by the Jews, desired of me. You want to stay. Some wanted to come and rest. You want to stay and serve. And while I was honest in saying that that first group's desire was a blessed one, well, yours is even more so. Verse 7, therefore, more blessed are ye. More blessed because you want to be more burdened. Ye shall never taste of death. Ye shall live to behold all the doings of the Father unto the children of men, even until all things shall be fulfilled according to the will of the Father, when I shall come in my glory with the powers of heaven. That's what John wanted, and that's what John got. It's what you want. It's what you'll get. The way the Lord describes it in Doctrine and Covenant section 7, verse 5, where we get a closer glimpse at that conversation between Jesus and Peter and John from John chapter 21, the shores of the Sea of Galilee after the resurrection. In that verse, Peter's was a good desire. But John wanted to do more. He wanted to do a greater work yet than anything he had accomplished previously. I actually love 
the positioning of that conversation at the end of the book of John. So one of the last things he writes. Remember the apostles had been fishing that night and had caught nothing? A little deja vu from what had happened three years earlier. And sure enough, someone who seemed like a stranger on the shore called out to them and asked if they'd caught anything. Now this is too good to be true and too close to the original when they were called the first time. And they finally recognize him and they've caught a boat full of fish by following the Savior's direction. But the moment they recognize him, what does Peter do? He dives in the water and swims to shore. I can't wait for the sails or the oars. I got to be with Jesus. I want to rush home to be with him. And what does John do? He stays in the boat because somebody's got to take care of these fish. They weren't caught for no reason. I love that glimpse into the personalities of these two great men, incredible companions in that first, first presidency. But to see Peter's desire to rush home to Jesus and John's desire to stay in the boat, you get that sense among the nine and the three. The, the nine would have dove in and raced Peter to shore. The other three would have been back with John, holding on to the nets. Now he further describes what's going to happen to them in verse 8. You shall never endure the pains of death, but when I shall come in my glory, you shall be changed in the twinkling of an eye from mortality to immortality, and then shall you be blessed in the kingdom of my Father. Sounds a lot like those who live to see the second coming, who during the millennium will not taste of death, but will rather be twinkled, changed in the twinkling of an eye. Un abrir y cerrar de los ojos, they say in Spanish. Kind of fun. And in Spanish, you, uh, an abrir and cerrar is a blink, an opening and closing of the eye. So in Spanish, you get blinked. In English, you get twinkled either way. You are changed from mortality to immortality. These three would simply have part of that blessing come early. Verse 9, again, you shall not have pain while you shall dwell in the flesh. Now, that's a nice promise. You're not going to endure the pains of death. That's verse 8. You're not going to taste of death. That's verse 7. You're not going to have pain while you're in the flesh. That's verse 9. But then notice this interesting caveat. You won't have sorrow either. So neither sorrow. But then this catch, save it be for the sins of the world. That's fascinating. I can spare you all kinds of things from this mortal slash immortal experience. No death with its pains or even its bad aftertaste. You won't feel, taste, suffer any of that. You won't have any sorrow except for the sins of the world. Because that, I hate to tell you, is unavoidable. It's inescapable. Why do you think Enoch saw a weeping God? Why do you think the Nephites at Bountiful saw a groaning Christ? Because we all need to maintain that openness, that, that empathy for the suffering that comes from sin and the sorrow over those that will endure that suffering. Sin will always bring the righteous sorrow, even if it doesn't bring the wicked sorrow yet. Makes me realize that godly sorrow is a part of every sin. Whether or not the sinner feels it, God feels godly sorrow every single time. His disciples will feel it too. There's no avoiding it. Even when I can put death itself on hold, pain, I cannot pause sorrow for sin. 
He continues in 9, All this will I do because of the thing which ye have desired of me. For ye have desired that ye might bring the souls of men unto me while the world shall stand. You want the work to continue. You want your work to continue. And in defense of those other nine, their work would continue too. It would simply continue on the other side of the veil. We know that from section 138 of the Doctrine and Covenants. It's like Elder Maxwell said as he was approaching the end of his life. I just want to play in the game. Don't incapacitate me and then leave me here on earth. I want a jersey. I want to play. I want to be on the field, on the court. Whether on this side of the veil or the other is fine. But don't take away my jersey. The nine disciples would be wearing it and playing on the field on the other side. These three wanted to continue that work here. While the world shall stand. Verse 10, for this cause you shall have fullness of joy. Just like Jesus felt at the end of chapter 27. Fullness of joy since none of this generation had been lost. You will know sorrow in verse 9, but you can also feel joy in 10. A fullness of it. Eventually you'll sit down in the kingdom of my Father. Yea, your joy shall be full, even as the Father hath given me fullness of joy. And ye shall be even as I am, and I am even as the Father, and the Father and I are one. Me and him, you and me, all of us, one with each other, one in purpose, one in work, one in glory, one in joy. Doesn't that sound like section 18? That if you should labor all your days and even extend those days interminably, how great shall be your joy with those that heed your call to repentance as you join them in the kingdom of our Father. That is joy at its fullest. Now in verse 12, Jesus touches the nine, does not touch the three, and then departs. In fact, that phrase, those four last words of verse 12, get completely lost in the shuffle. We're so intrigued by, wait, these three are going to avoid death? They're going to continue their ministry until the Savior's second coming? I want to learn more about that. And Mormon gives us information on it immediately. He was intrigued by this too. We'll see that in a second. But lost in the shuffle is the, those last four words. And then he departed. Honestly, that's probably how the Savior would actually have it. To let the spotlight shift to his followers as he meekly, quietly, almost unnoticed, just fades into the background. Remember he did that with the little children? Loosed their tongues, opened their mouths so that they could say even greater things than he had said. Did similar things to the disciples, apostles in the old world, going to do similar things for the disciples here in the new. And sure enough, verse 13, the camera angle shifts immediately to the opening of the heavens, not to see the Savior ascend, but rather to watch what happens with these three Nephite disciples. Behold, the heavens were opened and they were caught up into heaven and saw and heard unspeakable things. It was forbidden them that they should utter. Neither was it given unto them power that they could utter the things which they saw and heard. It's intriguing to realize that prophets often will tell us less than what they know. It's like what Mormon said earlier. I was going to tell you more, but the Lord withheld it, held me back so he could try the faith of his people. Sounds like similar things might be happening here. Now, just like there's things that we don't know about their experience, there's things that even they don't know about their experience. In verse 15, whether they were in the body or out of the body, they could not tell. It seemed unto them like a transfiguration of them, 
that they were changed from this body of flesh into an immortal state, that they could behold the throne of God. I mean, something must have happened. There was some transfiguration of sorts, but not even they completely understood what was happening to them. Is this a physical experience? Is this a spiritual experience? Am I in the body? Am I out of the body? Same phrase is used to describe Paul in his vision. Same thing is used to describe Joseph Smith at the end of the Doctrine and Covenants about his. Even reminds me of something that Lehi and Alma the Younger both said about their vision of God, where it said, I thought I saw God upon his throne. It's like, wait, you thought? Are, are you not? How can you not be sure? It's like, I don't even know if I'm in the body or not. I don't know if this is physical, spiritual, physical eyes, spiritual eyes. I don't know what's happening. These kinds of epiphanies, these visionary experiences go so far beyond the normal experience of daily life, that I would suggest we cut visionaries some slack as they try to explain them. I've seen people try to dismiss Joseph Smith's first vision just because there are multiple accounts of it. Well, read those accounts. They're all incredible, given to different audiences at different times with different levels of Joseph's own understanding of the experience as he grows into a fuller understanding of what took place. It's been my experience that those who attack that tend to magnify and even distort some of what they call discrepancies. And yet, even in things that might be hard to understand, my approach is not just to simplify and try to clarify that, no, it's exactly the same and everything is, is perfectly in order. Part of me just wants to say, I'm amazed that he could even put anything into words at all. Visionary experiences seem to be such that it's hard to tell exactly what's going on. I'll cut Joseph all the slack in the world, as Mormon seems to be cutting these three Nephites slack. They weren't even sure if they were in the body or not. Mormon doesn't quite understand what's going on. He has some questions, which he's about to ask in a moment. Before that, we get this detail in 16. It came to pass that they did again minister upon the face of the earth, Nevertheless, they did not minister of the things which they had heard and seen because of the commandment which was given them in heaven. Interesting. I think their ministry would be informed by what they'd seen and experienced in these visions. But their ministry was not to inform the people of those experiences themselves. Catch the difference? It's one thing to inform you of the experiences I've had. It's another thing to allow my experiences to inform the approach I take to my ministry among you, to motivate, to clarify, to impel, to inform, regardless of how much or how little of the specific visionary experiences they have had, they choose or are allowed to share with us. On 17, again, Mormon expresses his own or admits his own ignorance, whether they were mortal or immortal from the day of their transfiguration. I don't know. Verse 18, this much I do know, according to the record which hath been given, they did go forth upon the face of the land and did minister unto all the people, uniting as many to the church as would believe in their preaching, baptizing them, and as many as were baptized did receive the Holy Ghost. Sound familiar? What's our part of the gospel? That's it. Faith, repentance, baptism, Holy Ghost, endure to the end. What's the disciples' part in the gospel? Administer it. Help us know what we should be doing. That's exactly what they did. That's what they asked for. We want to continue our ministry until you come back. He says, okay, well then get started. Be my guest. And they were. They immediately resumed it. 
Verse 19, against the odds, they continued it. Now, this is coming from Mormon's perspective over time, looking back on this. Great persecution from 19 through 23, but nothing could stop them. Prisons that couldn't hold them. Pits that couldn't contain them. Wild animals that couldn't devour them. You name it, they went through it, but couldn't be stopped. It's actually fascinating to read Fox's Book of Martyrs that describes the horrific ways that disciples of Christ have met their end. It was popular reading among the Puritans back in the day. Joseph Smith himself read it and even asked God about it, wanting to know the fate of martyrs and kind of guess why that might be on his mind, right? But as it goes through and recounts the death of the original 12 apostles in Jerusalem, gruesome things, Peter's upside-down crucifixion, when it gets to John, Fox's Book of Martyrs admits, yeah, John is the only one of the original 12 apostles that we don't have any record concerning the, the way he met his fate. Well, there's a reason for that ignorance. But you get a similar glimpse at miraculous preservation here. Throughout it all, and despite all those obstacles, verse 23, what do they do? They go forth among all the people of Nephi, preaching the gospel of Christ unto all people upon the face of the land. And they were converted unto the Lord and were united unto the church of Christ. Thus the people of that generation were blessed according to the word of Jesus. Just like he knew, none of them would be lost. The fullness of his joy, the fullness of his disciples' joy. Makes me think that what Mormon describes in verse 19 through 22, all that opposition and persecution must have come in subsequent generations. Again, Mormon is dealing with all kinds of history and records that he has before him. And I just wonder if he's seen the subsequent ministry where they're up against these odds and people that will not listen and using that to compare that initial generation that they were an original part of, that were all converted to the Lord, united to the church of Christ. Maybe that's why he refers at the end of 23 to that generation being blessed according to the word of Jesus. Now, Mormon's about to wrap it up. Verse 24, he says, I, Mormon, make an end of speaking concerning these things for a time. He was about to write down the names of those three Nephites, but the Lord forbade it. But then he admits in 26, but I've seen them. So again, this is retrospective. This is now his own time period. They've ministered unto me. So he goes from the past of their calling to the present, his present of their ministry. He looks to the future as their ministry continues. 27, they will be among the Gentiles. Gentiles won't know him. 28, they'll be among the Jews. Jews won't know him. 29, when the Lord seeth fit in his wisdom that they shall minister unto all the scattered tribes of Israel, unto all nations, kindreds, tongues, and people, and shall bring out of them unto Jesus many souls, that their desire may be fulfilled, and also because of the convincing power of God which is in them. That's all going to happen through their subsequent ministry, of which we know next to nothing. But this is a ministry that deserves the name of the ministering of angels. So he says in 30, they are as the angels of God. And if they shall pray unto the Father in the name of Jesus, they can show themselves unto whatsoever man it seemeth them good. There have been experiences recorded and stories told and, and records compiled. Personally, I'll wait till I get an official one to be able to see from their own perspective, what did their ministry entail? That is a missionary homecoming address I look forward to hearing.
Verse 31, it will include great and marvelous works which are wrought by them. All before the great and coming day when all people must surely stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Among the Gentiles there shall be great and marvelous work wrought by them before that judgment day. Now 33 to 35, again Mormon interjects. Kind of interrupts to say, you know, from my perspective, now 400 years later, and from the perspective of prophecy, since he saw our day too. Again, Mormon's in this interesting position where he has a thousand years worth of history to record. He's living through his own end of Nephite history, civilization, but also sees the fulfillment of the Father's covenant through the restoration of the church and gospel in the last days. He kind of connective tissue between it all. And so he gives some perspective and some advice from his moment in history. He says in 33, if you had all the scriptures which give an account of all the marvelous works of Christ, you would, according to the words of Christ, know that these things must surely come. He can speak with some of this 2020 hindsight. We'll have even more of it. 34, woe be unto him that will not hearken unto the words of Jesus, also to them whom he has chosen and sent among them. For whoso receiveth not the words of Jesus and the words of those whom he hath sent, receiveth not him, and therefore he will not receive them at the last day. You get a sense that he may be speaking more of his time and more of our own? They just wouldn't listen, no matter who was ministering among them. 35, it would be better for them if they had not been born, because they signed on with Jesus in premortality, which is what enabled their birth to begin with. But then to go against, not just him, but to go against themselves, their own original decision to have moved forward and then to have fallen back. Oh, do you suppose that you can get rid of the justice of an offended God who hath been trampled under feet of men that thereby salvation might come? I almost get a sense of Mormon almost venting here based on his moment in history. He's watched what happened when a civilization listened to the Lord and accepted the words of his prophets. And he is living through a time when the exact opposite occurred. And then writing for a time where we are caught between those two poles. And which direction will we choose to go in? Will we be like the Nephites of Jesus' day, bathing his feet with our tears? Or like the Nephites of Mormon's day, trampling Jesus under our feet? The choice is ours. And Mormon, I think, is trying to help us make it wisely. Now, he gets back to the subject at hand in verse 36. Again, the previous few verses were his aside, like kind of looking into the camera. I, I've got to let you know where you are in history based on where I am in history. But then he gets back to the original history in 36. Behold, as I spake concerning those whom the Lord had chosen, yea, even three who were caught up into the heavens, that I knew not whether they were cleansed from mortality to immortality, Notice how he phrased it right there, by the way. Whether they were cleansed. You see, earlier he talked about being changed from mortal to immortal. I love the verb here, to be cleansed from mortal to immortal. There's something just inherently dirty about being made from the dust, about being mortal. No wonder we need to wash ourselves in the blood of the Lamb. No wonder we need the sanctifying, purifying agent of fire through the Holy Ghost. It's going to reveal who we really are, what our works really have been. They are cleansed from mortality to immortality. That was his question, though. How does that all happen? Had it happened yet? 37, behold, since I wrote, I have inquired of the Lord. So don't just wonder. 
Go ahead and ask. I mean, it's been Mormon that's been recording. Ask and ye shall receive. Okay, I hope that applies to me because I have a question. And he asks it. And he does receive. He hath made it manifest unto me that there must needs be a change, we could say a cleansing, wrought upon their bodies, or else it must needs be that they must taste of death. There's no other way around it. 38, therefore, that they might not taste of death, there was a change wrought upon their bodies, that they might not suffer pain nor sorrow. And then again, he asked to include that caveat, save it were for the sins of the world. Now, this change was not equal to that which shall take place at the last day. But there was a change wrought upon them, insomuch that Satan could have no power over them. He could not tempt them. I love that. They could sorrow of the sins of the world, but they would no longer be sorrowing over their own. Because they were freed from those temptations. They were sanctified in the flesh. They were holy. The powers of the earth could not hold them. And it was in this state that they would remain until the judgment day of Christ. And then, at that day, they would receive a greater change and be received into the kingdom of the Father to go no more out, but to dwell with God eternally in the heavens. Fascinating. That this initial transfiguration was a preview of coming attractions. A partial change that would be followed by a full change at the moment of resurrection. Almost a telestial to terrestrial, and then a terrestrial to celestial. Similar, it sounds, to what will happen to the righteous when the Savior returns. Now, lest we think that this discussion of the three Nephites is just meant for curiosity's sake or for history's sake, I do think that there is relevance here. Not that you or I get to sign up to be a fourth Nephite, though there have been prophets and apostles that I really wish had that gift. I'd love to hold on to them forever. But I do love the thought of patterning my discipleship after theirs, patterning my desires after theirs, at least. What would it look like to be a fourth Nephite? Here's my summary. It would be to have a desire to stay and serve rather than to go and rest. A desire to extend your mission, your callings indefinitely. To ignore death with its pains and sorrows, to be vulnerable to and moved by the sorrows that sin brings into other people's lives, to catch a glimpse of heaven to the point that it would motivate you to serve with all diligence, to inform the way you reach out to people and the things that you teach them, to be transfigured, to be changed from what you used to be, to be cleansed by the atonement of Jesus Christ, to ignore opposition, to persevere through persecution, to minister to all, whether or not they recognize who you are or whose you are, to overcome the adversary's temptations, to become holy, to be sanctified by the power of the Holy Ghost, to show people through your own way of living that there is an intermediate step between mere humanity and true divinity, that there is a higher way of living your life, that while we might not yet be in heaven, we don't have to be fully of the earth, that we have come to gather Israel, to bring them out of the world and bring them unto Jesus. If that's the desire of your heart, then you're a fourth Nephite. And however long your ministry continues on this side of the veil, it will continue on the other side. 
extending our missions one transfer at a time. Such, such a beautiful thing to, to aim for. Now, like I said, Jesus has already departed. It's easy to lose sight of that, like I mentioned. This fascinating description and, and exploration of what's taking place among the three Nephites. But Jesus departed half a chapter ago. And we do not hear from him again in third Nephi. All we are left with in chapter 29 and 30 are Mormon's words. Again, from his vantage point in history, looking back at history and prophesying yet looking forward to our history. And what he says to them and to us is key. Chapter 29, verse 1. Now behold, I, Mormon, say unto you, that when the Lord shall see fit in his wisdom, that these sayings, the Book of Mormon, shall come unto the Gentiles according to his word, that ye may know that the covenant which the Father hath made with the children of Israel concerning their restoration to the lands of their inheritance is already beginning to be fulfilled. He just summarized 3 Nephi 21 in a single verse. Right? All that, that kind of tricky to follow, when, but these things, these things, these things, when they come, when they're made known, when they come forth, it's go time. You'll know that the Lord is performing his work, that the Father is keeping his covenant. Mormon reminds us of that in a single verse at the beginning of 29. And looking to that day of covenant fulfillment, when the Gentiles finally receive this word and this wake-up call of, you've been part of the scattering through your wickedness and your greed, your, your privileged position as you've come into the Americas. Now you have to be part of the gathering. That's your larger role. So through the rest of this chapter, Mormon will teach them about who they are as Gentiles and about who the Father is as the Father tries to use them to perform his work. Verse 2, Ye may know that the words of the Lord, which have been spoken by the holy prophets, shall all be fulfilled. And ye need not say that the Lord delays his coming unto the children of Israel. That is, God vindicates his prophets. So don't think that their words won't be fulfilled. Don't think that the Lord is delaying his coming. It's all going to happen as promised and prophesied. That's one thing you Gentiles need to keep in mind. Verse 3, here's another. Ye need not imagine in your hearts that the words which have been spoken are vain. For behold, the Lord will remember his covenant which he hath made unto his people of the house of Israel. In other words, God keeps his covenants. Don't think for a moment that he has forgotten the promises that he's made. Verse 4, you Gentiles, learn this. When ye shall see these sayings coming forth among you, again, the sign of the coming forth of the Book of Mormon, then ye need not any longer spurn at the doings of the Lord. To spurn means to disdainfully dismiss or reject. Kind of turn your nose up at it. Walk it under your feet, as he said earlier. You no longer need to spurn at the doings of the Lord, for the sword of his justice is in his right hand, and behold, at that day, if ye shall spurn at his doings, he will cause that it shall soon overtake you. Woe unto him that spurneth at the doings of the Lord. Yea, woe unto him that shall deny the Christ and his works. What have we learned about God there? That he means business. Don't ignore his justice. Don't spurn at or reject his works. Gentiles, all of you, all of us who are responsible to help perform the Savior's work, the Father's work in gathering his household home, the house of Israel, take it seriously. God does mean business here. 
What else do we need to know? Verse 6, Woe unto him that shall deny the revelations of the Lord, and that shall say the Lord no longer worketh by revelation, or by prophecy, or by gifts, or by tongues, or by healings, or by the power of the Holy Ghost. Especially, as he says in verse 7, if you're saying all that, denying all those things, in order to get gain. If these denials are selfishly motivated, even worse. What do we need to know there, Gentiles? That God continues to do his work. So don't deny revelation or prophecy. Don't deny miracles. Don't deny that he is involved in this work in a personal way. Remember, that's what the Savior was saying with all of those Isaiah prophecies, that when the Book of Mormon comes forth, you'll know that the Father has already commenced his work. Yes, he delegates, but in this case, he participates as well. So know that and don't deny it. Then in verse 8, one more reminder to the Gentiles. Yea, ye need not any longer hiss, nor spurn, nor make game of the Jews, nor any of the remnant of the house of Israel. For behold, the Lord remembereth his covenant unto them, and he will do unto them according to that which he hath sworn. What do you need to know about God? That he remembers not just his covenant, but his covenant people. This is personal for him. It's like what Nephi said way back when, when people would say, oh, a Bible, a Bible, we don't need another Bible. And then Nephi gets on their case and says, yeah, but do you ever express gratitude for the people who produced it and provided it to you? Do the labors and pains and travails of the Jews ever cross your mind and bring a grateful thought or feeling? Do not mistreat the house of Israel. Do not look down upon the Lamanites. You who now seem to be first, don't look back or down at those who seem to be last, because someday the last shall be first and the first shall be last. Why do you think I'm asking you scatterers to now become gatherers so that you can come home with them instead of just switching spots? Verse 9, he concludes this chapter, Therefore ye need not suppose that ye can turn the right hand of the Lord unto the left, that he may not execute judgment unto the fulfilling of the covenant which he hath made unto the house of Israel. More than anything, what does Mormon want us eventual future readers to know? Again, he's looking into the camera now. He's broken the fourth wall. He's addressing us. He's finished his discussion of the ministry of Jesus Christ among the Nephites. He reminds us that when this book comes forth, it is proof that it's go time. And now that it's go time, now that I'm speaking to you readers, please understand that God keeps his word, that he remembers his covenant. He remembers his covenant people. He's playing this seriously, and we need to take it seriously as well. That nothing will stop him from performing his saving work. He gave his word, and the word was made flesh. He sent his son. That is the gospel that God sent his son to be lifted up upon the cross so that he could lift up everyone else right along with him. That is the gospel at its simplest, to do the Father's will and the Father's work, which Jesus did through atonement and crucifixion and resurrection, that we do through faith and repentance and baptism and Holy Ghost and enduring to the end, that we do in extending those blessings, coming in to recharge and then going out to do discharge this truth to the world, every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, both sides of the veil, helping the Father 
perform his work so that we help the Father keep his word. The way that Mormon ends that in verse 9 reminds me so much of what the Lord says way back in 2 Nephi 27. Two times in two verses, as the Lord shows to Nephi all that will happen in the latter days, he says, I am able to do mine own work. It's like, I got this, Nephi. I got this. Bank on it. Count on it. I am able to do my own work. He had no doubt. Couple that with what Joseph of Egypt says, again, twice, in the prophecy that Lehi shares with his son Joseph in 2 Nephi 3. Speaking of this work of restoration that would come in the last days, Joseph of Egypt says, I am sure of the fulfilling of this promise, and then repeats it. I am sure of this thing. You get a sense of those two coming together? The Lord speaking in 2 Nephi 27, his servant speaking in 2 Nephi 3. I've got this. I know you do. I am able to do my own work. And I am sure that you will. Mormon then gives his final invitation in chapter 30. This tiny little two-verse chapter. Again to the Gentiles. He's still staring into the camera. Hearken, O ye Gentiles. All our eggs are in your basket. It's all riding on you. You have to perform your work, your role in this. You Gentiles, hearken. Hear the words of Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. All that Jesus taught from chapter 20 through 26, what he's reminding you of in 27, what he's preparing the three Nephites for in 28, you Gentiles, step up to the plate. Join the ranks. Perform the work. Hearken, hear the words of Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, which he hath commanded me that I should speak concerning you. So this is the Lord's invitation coming through his servant Mormon. For behold, he commanded me that I should write, saying, and here it is, the Lord's invitation to all of us Gentiles. House of Israel in part, yes, but Gentile in part too called into the kingdom to call everyone else in as well. Gathered in order to gather. Chosen in order to choose. Here's the invitation. Verse 2, turn, all ye Gentiles, from your wicked ways. And then he starts listing them. There's a whole lot. A lot of wicked ways we need to turn away from. I used to read verse 2 as a reminder of the things we need to avoid. And it's a long list. Evil doings, lyings, deceivings, whoredoms, secret abominations, idolatries, murders, priestcrafts, envying, strifes, wickedness, abominations. It's a pretty good list. But to me now, those recede into the background to notice instead what he's asking us to do. So think less about that list of nouns, of wicked nouns, and look more at the list of verbs, things God is commanding us to do. The first is to turn, to turn to him, to see the voice who is speaking to us, that's calling us to join him in his cause. And then after the list of things we're supposed to turn from, back to our verbs of invitation, come unto me. That is the call of faith in Christ. Be baptized in my name. That is the call of covenant. That you may receive a remission of your sins and be filled with the Holy Ghost. That's the call of confirmation and of companionship with the Spirit, that ye may be numbered with my people who are of the house of Israel. You see the, the real invitation? I want you to invite everybody else so that you can respond to the invitation yourself. 
you Gentiles. I want to number you among my covenant people. So lay hold upon the covenant. Exercise faith in its source, Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins. Be baptized. Receive the Holy Ghost. I want you to be one with us. Gather to me and then gather all my sheep. Choose me and then help everyone else choose me as well. That is the work to which we are called, Jew and Gentile alike, inside or outside the house of Israel. Don't you get it? We're the family of God. We're children of him. We're brothers and sisters, and he wants all of us to come home to him. So turn and come. He is the door, and he has left it open.